0: Today's episode is brought to us by Bormanus, which always makes me go, "Eh." (laughs) but also Kodo, but was also directed by Mike Vahar. I've spoken well of him many times before, and many of these things I've been doing before. And unlike Mr. Livingston, this actually is Mike Vahar's last inclusion into Trek. I did a little bit of checking just to verify, and near as I can tell he hasn't been involved in new Trek, so this is it. There's a pretty good chance that several of these people would have kept sticking on. I wanted to comment on that. Because when I was going through TOS Season 3 and a little bit of 2, if you remember, I kept marking when certain people would leave the crew and would no longer be involved with the series. And mentioned that as kind of a marker to show how the series was progressing. It was kind of a unique thing because that only really happened with TOS and with Enterprise. Every other show, while they would have change-ups in the lineup and the -the behind-the-scenes, most of that was just shuffling around and the normal stuff. And then most of the general people would stay until the end, the series would conclude in the end. But TOS and Enterprise are unique. They're both the Star Trek shows that got cancelled. So in several of these cases, it's because people were seeing the writing on the wall and just bowed out in some cases it's because total coincidence this just happened to be the last project they worked on since remember by the point at which this episode came out hell by the point at which this episode was being written they already had plans and were working on the ideas that were going to go into a season five in fact this episode sets up a season five plot arc so i'm not sure which one it is for vihar he ended up doing some other things but not much after this point in history near as i can tell he is still around he's in his 70s now I wanted to, I have a list right in front of me here that I wanted to share with you. I didn't share all the stuff Mr. Livingston had worked on because it's gargantuan. Because he's been with the show since the onset of modern track. But Vihar, he came in with Coming of Age over in TNG. And he had, there's a decent list of stuff he's done over the years. On DS9, he did The Darkness and the Light, Empak Nor, Rocks and Shoals, Bada Bing Bada Bang, The Changing Face of Evil, and Tacking into the Wind. Over on Voyager, he tackled Year of Hell, Part 2, uh, Barge of the Dead, uh, Sunkatze, which is better than I thought it would be, Muse, which is way better than I thought it would be, The Void, that was him, Friendship One was him, and of course here on Enterprise, he's done some good stuff here with Civilization, Shadows of Pijam, uh Regime, or no, wait, not, not Regime, sorry. Um uh, Stratagem is the one I wanted there, sorry. Don't know the Enterprise episode names quite as well. He also worked on Observer Effect and, of course, the Enar this episode. So, another person to say goodbye to. If you're curious of other stuff he's worked on, he's done The Dead Zone, Lewis Clark, Clark, uh, that is to say, Lewis and Clark, excuse me, New Adventures of Superman, Jeremiah. Uh, some of you might know him for the work he's done over on Babylon 5, though. I honestly don't remember if I ever mentioned him when it came to Bab 5, but, Yeah. <laughs> See you around, Mr. Vihar. You did good. This is uh, an episode... It's, it's kind of a downswing, because the Federation plot has effectively concluded in the previous episode, in that big awesome moment of awesome. The four allies, the four founding races, have allied and are allied, and are now going to be working together going forward to try and figure things out. And that's awesome. But we still have to deal with our enemy, the Romulans. Now, it's funny, they could have chopped this off and not done this episode. But they wanted to do some shifts, and they wanted to do some establishment. And they wanted to do another lead-in to another thing, which we'll talk about in a bit. So the first thing we see is some Romulan politics. Now, nothing here is new that I haven't already talked about. I spent plenty of time discussing Romulan politics last week. But here, last week... It always feels weird to say that, because for me it was just about an hour and a half ago. But... Um Here, we also see that there's one additional niggle. Anybody who talks about Rome and Roman stuff, try we try to clarify which Rome we're talking about because there's quite a few. And the more niggly you get, the more different romes there are. Especially if you start to count the Byzantines as Rome, or the Musco- Muscovites as Rome, and or the HRE as Rome, and you get my point. But During a certain period in Roman imperial history, that is to say the Roman Empire, the expansive empire that crossed most of the Mediterranean, there was a a thing that some people disagree on, but I am in the camp that I believe that this was one of the many things that led to the inevitable downfall of the Roman Empire. And that was violence in politics. And we joke and talk about how politics would be much better if the politicians were allowed to bludgeon or kill each other, but history doesn't tend to to you know, support that particular idea. And we find out that, just like their Roman counterparts, the Romulans will absolutely kill you if you fail. If you are someone who do not, you know, don't pull pull in results or seem to have wasted time or resources or been a traitor to the Empire by virtue of having failed in a way that damages the Empire, well, congratulations. They will absolutely kill you over that. It's just interesting, since that helps to establish one of the other reasons why they tend to be so um, infighty, since they know that if their particular project fails, well, they might not survive its failure. In fact, it's actually always been amusing to me that in the future they would name a class of Romulan ship after Valdor, considering the fact that Valdor is an unabashed failure here. But... This is only the one failure, and I know, one failure is more than enough to kill you and have your name smeared forever in Romulan politics. But, remember, Valdor used to be a senator, got kicked out, for reasons we'll get into in a minute, and then managed to work his way back up in the military directly up to an admiral's seat. The man is obviously accomplished, so, I don't know. Fortunately, we'll never see him again. It's a shame he would have been an awesome recurring character for the upcoming Romulan War, which historically is happening pretty soon to the events that we're at timeline-wise. This leads to the idea of the telepresence. I get why they call it this. The whole point is that's a telepathic way of controlling a ship remotely, but it's a remote control. And as to Paul describes it, it's just a remote control. In fact, they never even explain why they need telepathy for this thing to work. It's just, no, it, work, it runs on telepathy. Okay. I mean, we have remote control drones now, and we have for a while. We've had remote control stuff for a while. Now, I know, I know. You know, there's, there's differing levels of tech. Getting the signal there, making sure the signal isn't interrupted is actually a huge deal. It's one of the reasons why drones are kind of an asterisk when it comes to military affairs in real life, and it's something that science fiction needs to address whenever it adds that, because... All you have to do is block, jam, or, t- or uh, uh, the- usurp the signal. And then now those drones are either worthless or working on your side. So, you know, it's obvious, right? Anyways, whatever. We find out about the Enar. I want to talk about World of Warcraft for just a second. Or more accurately, I just want to talk about Warcraft. I mean, I always want to talk about Warcraft. It's my probably my favorite setting overall. But... <sighs> One of the things I've always found interesting about Azeroth compared to most other settings, how many subspecies of Vulcans are there? How many subspecies of Klingons? For a long time, we had a theory about Klingons, actually, and that the, the subspecies was the smooth foreheads. It's just that theory was then thrown out the window because we see, uh, several, three separate Klingons who have appeared smooth skinned and with ridges. Star Trek Online is actually the thing that would really codifyingly explain all this away, but let's not get into that yet. This is coming up in the future. We'll be addressing this in Enterprise. But I bring all this up because we don't really see subspecies, and I've always found that interesting. I get why. It's a TV show with budget issues that came out in the 60s, and then late 80s, mid-90s, early aughts, right? So... There's limitations nowadays. You could probably do something like subspecies more easily because you don't need the template uh, makeup styles. You don't need the template face play- plants and the ear things and all that fun stuff to to bring the the budget down to make it so that it's more reasonable to show these humanoid uh, creatures without having to change up every single one. You know, you, you, you can look at that and you can see it's a Klingon. I bring this up in comparison to Azeroth because, while elves are the easy example, we could deal with most things in Azeroth, most races, and point to how many subspecies there are. I mean, how many types of dwarves are there? Just off the top of my head. We've got the Dark Irons, we've got the Bronze Hammers, we've got the Wild Hammers. or not the Bronze Hammers, the Bronze group. Bronze Bronze Beards. Then we've got the Wild Hammers. Then we've got the Iron Dwarf. Then we have the Earthen. I know that's, that's asterisking a little bit, but still, those are all subspecies of the same overall species. In fact, actually, all of those are subspecies of Earthen, which would be the originator of that group. But my point stands. Those all look and have... Not only do they look different, they have different cultures and different societies, and for all intents and purposes, should be considered separate species. I just bring all of this up because I feel like this is the kind of thing Star Trek could have used. We do see for the races that do get enough screen time to be developed, that there are races that have variances within regards to individuals, cultures, society, economics, military, etc. Art, you know. We see this amongst the big races, most of which got a lot of their development over on Deep Space Nine. But we never see this in terms of like, like there's no subspecies of Ferengi or Cardassian or whatever. And even the Remans don't actually count. They're not a subspecies, they're an enslaved race, which show up again in this episode, by the way. I don't know, food for thought. Then we cut to Trip and to Paul, and the two are talking. Trip Trip is like, hey, you know, when you're in a dire situation and you think you're going to die, like, what goes to your mind? And her response is, oh, "Well, there was a moment when we almost died in the expanse, and what was going through my mind is whether or not we should, you know, change the deflector energy to this other array." And Trip's like, "Okay." Now it's kind of played as a light joke, but think about it; it actually says a lot about both of their mentalities. The engineer, Trip, was kind of going for the more profound thought—something effectively useless in the immediacy, but with more long-term ramifications and implications. To Paul the scientist, was thinking about the immediacy and the practical concerns of the now. That is what was going through her mind. How do I make this moment endure so that it's not my last moment? That's another interesting variance there. Because while he's focused on more the long term and she's focused more on the short term, it's also worth noting that he kind of had sort of given up and was more thinking about, well, I'm about to die, whereas she hadn't. Interesting contrast. We see a bunch of the two interacting in this episode. We'll try and talk about that as we go. Meanwhile, underground Andorian cities and not seeing the sun until you were 15. This is also our first actual shot of Andoria. One of the things that the the Reeve Stevens crew actually specifically wanted to do was try to tie up some loose ends and continuity because one of those little problems is that Star Trek writers often introduce something and then don't codify what they should call it. You know, Klingonese is a good example of that, or uh, Vulcania, I believe, is what it was originally called in TOS. Just to name two examples. This is a semi-common thing. So there's both Andor and Andoria. In this case, they wanted to tie that up neatly. So Andoria was turned into a moon. And that's actually the homeworld of the Andorians. It orbits Andor, the gas giant. ta There you go. Makes sense. And it's actually a pretty neat little solution to this one. It makes me wonder how many other little holes could be plugged if we put some effort and thought into it. But I also mention that because it's unique, uh, to my knowledge, to see a race develop entirely on a moon. Uh, makes me wonder. I mean, it's not exactly a small moon. It's also funny to me because I've known that for a while. But I have to admit, even though it's mentioned here in Enterprise, I know that more from Star Trek Online than I do from Enterprise. Because you can go to Andoria Anyways. <clears throat> so then he slips and he's on an ice <laughs> You know, they actually did show him having trouble walking just a bit ago. So, you know, maybe maybe dial back the pride just a little bit. Nah, it's okay. It works out. Because by that point, they've gone far enough in order to trip the Enar detection grid or telepathy or whatever it is they use. We'll talk about that in a moment. I love the look of the Andorian cities. This also leads to a scene... Uh, Well, there's a bunch of good scenes here. The first I want to talk about, we have a nice character scene, and there's some really great pacing. I don't know if this is down to Vahar, or the editing staff, or the writing staff, or whatever. Tucker and Tapal have a scene, and they just kind of start to drift apart. Tapal says, I think your feelings are affecting your work. Now, Tucker takes that very personally, and he should. That is a huge insult. That is flat out saying... You're sucking at your job because you're looking at me too much. Quit it. Now, she doesn't say it that way, and she doesn't even mean it that way. She's not trying to be unkind. She's saying this out of concern for a friend and someone who, let's be honest, she does have feelings for. She's just still sorting that out. Tucker takes it very personally and slams that door hard. This then leads to another decent scene. It's between Comb and... Uh, Jamel, I didn't get her actress name, sorry. Uh, so between Shran and Jamel. It's a good scene. It's very rare to see Jeffrey Combs play this kind of a character, or a kind of a moment, I should say. Most of his stuff is more, you know, more open, more more, ha or I'm the villain, or I'm doing this. And he's, he's much more boisterous, much more uh, energetic with the type of characters he plays. And this has been true in Trek as well. He's just, yeah, right? In most even Wayoon was, was even he was he was doing the, the slimy uh, salesman shtick, he was still moving around and energetic and laughing and smiling and seeing him do this kind of quiet Trek character moment, which Trek has been doing since TOS and is very good at I might have was kind of new. I'm not sure he's never done this before. I am reminded of Wayoon Seven, I think, and his scenes between Odo on the runabout, which were of a similar take. But I think that's the only other one I could come up with, at least when it comes to Trek. He does some stuff like this as the question over in the DCAU, but I think that's that's all I've got right there, three total times. It's a shame, because he's good at it. I almost believe that Mr. Vihar actually was specifically telling him the kind of beats he needed to pull across, because if you pay attention, what happens is the camera cuts to her, Jamal, she says something, and then he reacts to it. Cuts to her, he reacts to it, cuts to her, he reacts to it. Three beats right in a row. But each time, the emotion, both in his tone and his body language, as he's, as he's expressing on his face, change based on what it's saying. Each three of these reactions is a distinct different emotional reaction. The first one, you know, uh, he's my brother. His response is a very cold, almost professional, I'm sorry. And you can almost see in there the fact that what he is saying is, I'm sorry that I'm going to kill your brother, because I totally am. I am sorry that it's going to hurt you, but I'm still going to kill your brother. Like that's what he's saying, and it comes across in his perspective. This then cuts back to her, and saying, "You know, no, we're 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 pacifists. We never do this." Cut back to him, "So we've been told." In other words, this is just a placating statement. Yeah, sure. But then it cuts back to her, and she says, "You know, do you think?" And his response is, "There's no way of knowing." Here he's actually trying to be kind. There's a degree of concern as he deflects the question to prevent her from having to deal with the reality that he knows that they are going to be facing. It's a very good quiet moment. It also cuts immediately to Garab. This also is a scene where we see, and I wrote his name because only, they only say his name once in the whole episode Nigel, which is the scientist, the Romulan scientist, who, you know, is, is hooking Garab up and flat out says, forgive me. A decent amount of effort is done to try and flesh out Nigel to be, for lack of a better way to put it, not horribly evil in these episodes. That's important. Even in the Romulans' very first introduction ever, effort was made to show that not all Romulans are bad guys. That was one of the points of the Balance of Terror. And I talked about that at length. It's a great episode. I love it. I'd love to watch it again because it's fantastic. It's one of my favorite Toss episodes. And so we see that even here... Technically, before Balance of Terror, we still have, for lack of a better way to put it, sympathetic Romulans, which is important. We need these people to not be seen as our enemies, even if we're about to go to war with them, especially given all that would come in the future, leading up to and effectively concluding with Nemesis. God, that's, that's how we left Trek, was with Nemesis. I, I mean, timeline-wise, obviously, Enterprise was the last thing to come out before, you know, the big gap between uh, modern Trek and new Trek... Anyways, so then this cuts immediately to the device on the Enterprise after they hook Garab up, and now Paul is getting at it, and it is implied it is quite unpleasant to interact with. That's fun. But you'll notice I skipped over a scene. It's because I wanted to talk about that scene separately. Earlier, we have Valdor, and he's just speechifying to Najil. He doesn't come across as cacklingly evil here. He is definitely villainous. I don't want to say otherwise. But what's weird is he comes across as someone who is a product of the Romulan Star Empire. That's how I want to say that. We're all soldiers. And that mentality right there speaks volumes about the Romulan Star Empire. But not as much as his next sentence for years i have used this line not only when discussing other fiction but when discussing the romulans in particular if you've seen any of the the co the cooperative streams that i've done uh, with mr reloaded and miss gender it seems weird to call her that um, <laughs> then you'll notice i've probably brought this exact phrase up when discussing the romulans before because valdor was a senator now for those of you not aware, Romulan political structure has three different groups who all kind of sit at the top. There's the head of the Senate. That's something that kind of bounces around. There's the Senate. And then there's the, the I forget, actually I forget if it's the consul or the proconsul, but they're technically in charge of things, but only because they're being backed by the military. All three of these, I'm doing this very vaguely, please forgive me, because the problem is it's inconsistently shown, so at different points in history, the power structure changes, and based on the Romulan, you know, structure and political problems I've already talked about, it's possible the structure literally has changed in lore at multiple points, but the point is, all three of these sit on a different pillar. One is supported by the military, one is supported by the infrastructure, one is supported by the Tal Shiar, and all three of those pillars support those three upper echelons of, of organization at varying points in time, depending on what you consider as canon. Asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. I bring all this up because senators, and this is the important part, the senators are at the top there. They're not the top because there's several senators, but that's that's the top tier. There's, there's not really a tier above that unless you count the consul, which kind of runs the Senate, but only does so at the pleasure of the military. So in my opinion... It's equal tier in terms of overall influence and power. With me? You can disagree on this. That's fine, because this isn't something that's codified. This isn't fact. This is opinion. But Valdor was at that level, top tier. And again, this kind of ties into the earlier thing I was mentioning. And he, as this powerful individual, was drummed out of the Senate for simply questioning whether or not conquest was the the designated task that should befall Romulans. In fact, he says it beautifully. I questioned the precept of unlimited expansion. So by the way, sorry, it started raining. If you hear the extra noise, that's what's going on. The very concept of unlimited expansion says so much. There have been uh, kingdoms, empires, nations, countries, political entities in real life that have had this exact concept. The idea that you should... That expansion is normal. That's what it really means. That continuing to expand and continuing to take new territories and new resources and new provinces is what should happen. You know, painting the map, right? Now, obviously when we play, you know, Grand Strategy or 4X games, that's kind of the goal, or at least one of the main goals we tend to have. But in real life, in lore... That's actually not a particularly sustainable model, and it speaks volumes about the mentality of the organization that posits it. In almost every case, what's happened is they've kind of deflated by virtue of overextension. There are very few exceptions to that, and most of those exceptions had other substantial problems that got in the way of that. The Romulans are actually, if I might be so bold, lucky to have endured as long as they did, up to and including the devastation of, their, of the Hoba star. I prefer the STO follow-up to that, to the Picard follow-up. No, I still haven't seen Picard, but I'm vaguely aware of what happens. But the fact remains, they have endured quite a while for having this precept. Except, if you look at the evidence, it makes perfect sense, especially given the long dark in between uh, Star Trek VI and TNG, that the the Romulans had to have at some point cancelled that. Oh, sure, they still want to take territory and and ensure their eminence against the other major powers, the Klingons and the Federation. But that policy of just continuing to expand and expand and expand was obviously rescinded at some point, or at the very least put on hold. And it's entirely possible that their consistent failures and their bucking up against the other two major powers is exactly why. It has been argued and this is something that can be debated, that from a long-term view, and the reason this can be debated is because this has never happened in real life. We're not at the point where this can be debated yet, really. Um, it can be debated that singular powers, superpowers, tend to naturally happen. That by logical process of elimination and just mathematical entropy, you know, the, the weaker powers or the less lucky powers eventually shift away and are absorbed or combined into larger powers until there's one preeminent power within a region. Star Trek continues this very theory. Almost every major region within the galaxy is dominated by at least one major power. The big exception is the home regions of the Alpha and Beta Quadrants. And I've actually talked about this before, because I myself have a theory that the Federation is why there is an imbalance there. Because if the Feds were an expanding power, then they would win. They would have successfully pulled down the Romulan Star Empire and the Klingon Empire and would be the dominant power. But they don't want to, because they're the Federation. And for all their many, many flaws, that's just not their way. So the Klingons didn't actually rise to prominence, because they didn't beat the Feds. The Romulans didn't rise to prominence, because they couldn't beat either. And so just kind of a balance rose up between the three. Now there are other powers to consider, of course. But you see my point. I bring all of this up because all of this development of their culture and their politics and their approach and all of this fascinating stuff all comes from a single scene. Well, actually, several scenes. In Season 4 Enterprise, which is, once again, why I praise these scenes and this particular arc for how much it expounds upon the Romulan mentality and upon the government that they sit underneath. Anyways. So. Uh, all right. We need to, so we, there's this there's this bit where uh, Jamel and Shran and Archer are leaving Andoria. And they're like, we've been here before. It's like, you're right, they're preventing us from leaving. And the woman shows up and is like, hey, don't leave. I'll give you permission to read my mind. Okay. Oh, you actually mean it. Okay. We'll let you leave. And they're quite accommodating. I just had a random thought during that. Man, I wish the Jedi were this cool. No, um, the, the random thought. I mean, for pacifists, i prefer these, these fellows over the Jedi, you know what I mean? Um, but it makes me wonder if this is technology or telepathy. Because if it's telepathy, then isn't that kind of violating the rule by beaming illusions into people's brains? If it's technology, that says a lot about how they've managed to stay hidden for so long. In fact, it's probably something that I would lean towards, that they do deliberately go out of their way to keep their presence completely masked. And the only reason that they actually allowed the crew to find them in the first place is because they'd already been warned by the Andorian counselor, hey, these people are coming to talk with you. Otherwise, they probably would have just been lost in the caves or directed to go right back out so they wouldn't be you know, lost and die in there. It's food for thought. There's a lot of good scenes between Jamel and uh Shran. He, he takes an almost protective stance towards her. He's very very supportive, though. And I don't mean in the nothing can hurt her way. I mean in the she's got this kind of way. He he is weirdly kind in how he interacts with her. It's obvious there's a connection there immediately. And spoilers, in the very last episode of Season 4, which occurs years after the rest of Season 4, we find out the two actually do end up together. It's just strange. I probably wouldn't have had them have a romantic connection personally, but whatever. What I do find uh, far more interesting is that this kind of helps establish a point that will be coming up soon. Because So they go. Jamal uses the thing. They, they stop it. Garad is killed by Valdor. He's alive and well to be in season five. Uh, you know the best part about season five and how much I lamented? It'll never happen now. Oh, we could make a season five, but it would be new cast, new crew, new writers, new everything. It would just be a whole new team making season five, you know what I mean? Like that, like the opportunity was missed. It's gone. It's not coming back. Anyways, so you know, whatever. Uh, they win, yay! What happens though here this is the important part. Shran mentions that he's so he's obviously getting closer to her, and. Implications of being willing to stay you know, stateside for a while, or planet side, excuse me. Moon side? Well, no, that's just Earthbound at that point. But also that he's not going to get a ship. This is doing what season four does best laying dominoes for the future and trying to connect to the future while they connect to the past. It There has been a few conflicting reports, I did a little more research for this specific episode, about whether or not Shran was going to be a regular in Season 5. Let's go ahead and say outright, we don't know. Several of the creative staff had said yes, but it was a plan, not something they had codified. Uh, Mr. Combs himself had said he hadn't heard anything about it, but that's not exactly uncommon. He's the actor, he doesn't get all those, those information, especially since the show was cancelled not that often after this, and everyone kind of knew they were teetering over the edge. But I bring this up because based on my analysis, my speculation is with 100% certainty that Shreyan was going to join the crew, actually join the NX-01 crew. Because look at the setup here. Ignoring the regular guest star, who they have no problem bringing back regularly, he was also detached from his ship and, and was the point man for the alliance between the humans and the Andorians. Also arguably the point man for the Andorian contact with the burgeoning Federation. Come on. Thus, the destruction of his ship in this arc and the setup here, to me, is that laying down brick for the eventual buildup for Shran to actually join the crew. And, God, that would have been awesome. Speaking of Shran joining the crew, Tucker is leaving the crew. This is what I think to be one of the few missteps of Season 4. I decided to go and look it up just to, just to make sure. Tucker is leaving the crew for three episodes. That's it. Now, I get it, and we'll talk about it as we go through these upcoming three episodes, because he's going through a character arc, and I get it. But it is still just a little bit of an eyebrow raise. It reminds me of when Worf was leaving the Enterprise for two episodes, (laughs) arguably like an episode and a half, back during Redemption. You remember that? It's hard for me to care when you build up this big separation moment when I know it's going to be undone relatively quickly. It makes me wonder if they should have actually had Tucker leave the crew and actually go over. I mean, I've talked so many times about how much I like the bouncing camera, so having the camera bounce between the Columbia and the Enterprise. Either way, that's all we got. The Federation is on its way. The Romulans have been pushed back. The Vulcans are even cool. Everything's cool. Everything's going well. Hopefully, things will continue to go well. Next time.